now it is the holiday season. Hanukkah, Christmas, New Year. Special time of year culturally to most people and most of the Judeo-Christian world. We want to have a biblical perspective, however, of these things. So here on RTN, we are going to be looking at something I address once a year. Every year somewhere, sometimes in a church or a meeting or a broadcast or a webcast, I give this particular teaching, but we've never done it for RTN, so we're going to do it now, and it's called Christmas is Coming. Christmas is Coming. Well, dear friends, my family, my wife, my children are Israeli Jewish believers in Jesus, and my grandson as well. They are celebrating what Jesus celebrated this time of year, the Feast of Hanukkah. Hanukkah has its origins, of course, in the prophecies of the Hebrew prophet Daniel, and we have a historical record in the two books in the apocryphal literature, First and Second Maccabees. But Jesus made multiple references to Hanukkah at this time of year. He referred to Hanukkah in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24, where he spoke of the Shikusa Meshomem, the abomination of desolations, spoken of by Daniel. Now, this has to do, of course, with Antiochus Apophanes setting up an image of himself in the temple against which the Maccabees revolted. And that is the Feast of Hanukkah called the Feast of Dedication in John's Gospel, chapter 10, which Jesus was celebrating this time of year, based on the book of Daniel. But also we see it again in the New Testament, both in John 10 and again in the Olivet Discourse. That is what Jesus will have, would have celebrated this time of year, according to the New Testament. He was not observing Christmas, he was observing Hanukkah. Christmas had to do with the pagan Roman feast of Saturnalia, Saturnalia. Uh, now, there are those who would argue that because of the pagan origins of Saturnalia and Christmas and things associated with it that are of specifically pagan origin, worshiping of under every green tree and mistletoe and things of this nature, that Christians shouldn't celebrate it. Well, here's the problem. The Hebrew month corresponding to the month of December is the Hebrew month of Kislev in the Hebrew calendar. Actually, the names are Akkadian, not Hebrew, but Kislev. Hanukkah is the 25th of Kislev, same time of year as Christmas and concurrent with Christmas many years when the lunar and solar calendars coincide. I'm reminded of two biblical passages this time of year, always. Colossians chapter 2, 16 to 19, and Romans 14, 4 to 5. Who are you to judge the servant of another? Through his own master he stands or falls. One man esteems one day, one another. Let each be convinced in his own mind. Whether you celebrate Christmas or the Nativity or not, is a matter of personal choice before the Lord and personal conscience, and no one else has a right to judge you for doing it if it's done unto the Lord. Now, I'm not talking about the commercial fanfare and, and, and 
the supplanting of Jesus with Santa Claus and Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer and Frosty the Snowman and things of this nature. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the nativity. Secondly, we have Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 to 19. Let no one act as your judge in regard to a festival, a new moon, or a Sabbath. No one can judge you whether you celebrate it or not, if you celebrate it unto the Lord. Now, we do not know when Jesus was born. We do not even specifically know the year. There are historical debates among scholars, particularly concerning the accounts of Luke's gospel relative to the other synoptics. We do not know the exact day of his coming. The reason we do not know the exact day or the exact year of his coming is because his first coming, as we shall see, is a picture of his second. We will not know the day or the hour of his second coming. We will only know by the signs. So it was in his first coming. The wise men knew by the signs, but more of that in just a moment. We do not know the day, the hour, the year of his first coming. And the reason is because we will not know the day or the hour of his second coming, the parousia. The first coming teaches much about the second coming. If you're going to observe it, observe it unto the Lord. Now, my family, my wife and myself, all we do at so-called Christmas, there is no Christmas. First of all, my family, being Israeli Jews, celebrate the, the Feast of Hanukkah, as Jesus did. We're having Hanukkah at this moment. Okay. Secondly, <clears throat> we observe only the nativity. We go to church. We go to the carol service. Christmas can be used as an opportunity for evangelism and sharing the gospel. You can get people to come to church once a year who will only come to church for cultural reasons, but give them the gospel. You can use carol services and caroling as a way to give out tracts. If it can be used evangelistically, I'm all for it. If it's Christ-centered, if it's telling people he came once and he's coming again, I'm all for it. My family, we don't have Christmas. We have Hanukkah, as Jesus did, but we also have an observance of the nativity. The nativity is arguably the second most important event in history, or probably the third most important event in history. Third only to his return and to his death and resurrection on the day of Pentecost. After those things, God becoming incarnate in human form through the Virgin, fulfilling the prophecies of Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, the nativity is the third most important event in human history. Some would say the second, I would say the third, but I wouldn't argue the point. If you observe it, that is between you and the Lord. If you don't observe it, it is between you and the Lord. But if you do observe it, observe it as unto the Lord. Don't make it about commercial frolicking and things of this nature. I remember when I was young, my mother raised me up Roman Catholic. I reject that now, but I was made to go to Catholic school and things by my mother. And I remember by the time I became a teenager, for purely cultural reasons, 
We'd go to midnight mass and everybody would be stoned on pot and drunk. If you want to see a drunken fiasco, forget about Times Square and New Year's Eve in New York. Something just as bad as Bethlehem on Christmas Eve. It is a drunken fiasco. That's no way to honor the birth of Jesus or remember the birth of Jesus. If you're going to celebrate it or observe it, do it as unto the Lord. We only have Hanukkah because Jesus celebrated Hanukkah at this time of year, and my family are, 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 are Jewish, and we have the nativity. I love to go to church. I love to sing, hark the herald angels sing. Hark the herald angels sing is my favorite Christmas carol because my family is a mixture of Jewish and non-Jewish. That hymn, the music was composed by Mendelssohn, by Felix Mendelssohn, a Jewish believer in Jesus, but the lyrics were composed by Charles Wesley, a non-Jew. It is a great Jew-Gentile collaboration. And uh, that's what the body of Christ is, Jew and Gentile becoming one in the Messiah through faith in Jesus, in his death and resurrection and in his promised return. So I love Hark the Herald Angels Sing, Born to Give Them Second Birth. I love Charles Wesley's hymns, and that is my favorite Christmas carol of all time, although there are others I like as well. That has got to be number one on my spiritual hit parade for Christmas time. <clears throat> I'll tell you a true story. I was living in Israel at the time, co-leading a congregation in Galilee, but I had to visit London for a conference and for some other things. And I had a day off and my trip to London. So I went to see some of the Christian heritage sites around London. And one of which I did, I went to the John Wesley Museum in Islington in London on City Road. And I'd always been infatuated with John Wesley as a historical figure in the Christian church. And a lot of my theology is similar to his Wesleyan Armenianism, or it is Wesleyan Armenianism in most respects. And so I went to the museum, and I went to the church. And the sextant was very nice to me. I told him I lived in Israel and so forth. And he showed me the organ lock, and he opened it. And he said to me, this is where Charles Wesley originally composed Hark the Herald's Angels Sing. Now, of course, later the music was changed by Mendelssohn. They took they took an excerpt from something Mendelssohn composed, and that's Hark the Herald Angels Sing as we have it now. Peace on earth and mercy, mild God and sinners reconciled. Hark the Herald Angels Sing. We have it, and, it's, and it can be a wonderful choral arrangement, of course. Well, we have that. Uh, and together with Handel's Messiah, it's something I'm, I'm, I listen to fervently every year at the nativity time i listen to handel's messiah and i listen to that so this nice sextant of this church opened the gate where the organ loft was and he told me charles wesley composed hark the herald angels sing my favorite christmas carol on this particular organ and i asked him if i could do it and i was so nervous <laughs> trying to play hark now i'm a terrible pianist anyway i get so self-conscious i can only play in front of my wife because she knows how bad i am but I, I went in and adopting my piano skills if you want to call it piano skills 
to to organ. I went in to play Hark the Herald Angels Sing, and I was so nervous, I began playing Angels We Have Heard on High, Glory in the Chelsea's Deo. I played the wrong hymn. I was just so nervous playing Charles Wesley's organ. True story. True story. So much about what we call Christmas is not historically or biblically accurate. Let's begin where we've already begun. This time of year, Jesus as a Jew and the apostles celebrated Hanukkah, not Christmas. Let's move on for a moment to Santa Claus or Father Christmas, as he is more commonly known in Great Britain, Australia, and New Zealand, and certain Commonwealth countries, Father Christmas, Santa Claus. <laughs> there was a Greek pastor in the 5th century in the area around Ephesus and Izmir, and his name was Nicholas. Nicholas. Nicholas was somebody known for his kindness to the poor, his love for children, and his evangelistic ministry to seamen, to sailors. He was an evangelist to sailors, but he was known for his Christian humanitarian efforts among the poor and for his love for children. He was also one of the leaders who was imprisoned in Asia Minor during the last Roman persecution or the last pagan persecution of believers. Uh, he was there. That was Nicholas. Now, somehow in Holland, St. Nicholas, Santa Claus, it, it, it became Santa Claus. However, the St. Nicholas in Holland is distinguished from Santa Claus or Father Christmas. Yes, I think on the 12th of December, they have St. Nicholas dressed like a, a bishop coming with a, a, a black friend called Pete. And Pete is always a black guy, and Nicholas is always there with the beard, but he's a clergyman and known for his love of children. And in Holland, he comes into Rotterdam or Amsterdam on a steamboat every year, and the parents take their little kids to see him. This is totally distinct from Father Christmas or Santa Claus as we know him. But in the English-speaking world, the two became convoluted. They became one figure. One figure, St. Nicholas, Santa Claus become the same person in the English-speaking world, Father Christmas, Santa Claus, Kris Kringle, whatever, they all become the same figure, even though in Holland there were two figures. Okay. And they get all this other stuff about the reindeer and the sleigh and the North Pole and all this, and the elves and fairies and all this stuff has nothing whatsoever to do with the historical figure of St. Nicholas. He really existed. He may have been a saved Christian. Even though he was post-Nicene, he may have been a believer. No problem. Originally, he was pictured dressed in a kind of yellowish gold outfit. But the Coca-Cola company, for marketing and advertising purposes, in the early 20th century, changed his outfit to red. 
with white because that was the colors of the Coca-Cola labeling. And it became an advertising gimmick by Coca-Cola Company. So you wind up with this Father Christmas in England or Santa Claus in the United States who's dressed like this. And he has nothing whatsoever to do with the historical person we call St. Nicholas. Nothing. It's all invented. Jesus celebrates Hanukkah. St. Nicholas was not Father Christmas. Or Chris Kringle doesn't live in the North Pole. He lived in Asia Minor. Well, let's continue even further. What else? The most important thing about understanding the nativity is his first coming is a picture, a template, a shadow of his second. We cannot understand the return of Jesus unless we understand his first coming. You cannot understand the second. Tentatively, this is going to be the subject and title of my next book, Born in a Manger, Coming on a Cloud. I've already begun to work on it. How his first coming teaches about his second. Okay, it's very important. Now let's just look at some of these things. Turn with me, please, if you will, to the book of Revelation, chapter 12. Once again, some of you know from my book, No Bomb in Gilead, what I'm going to read now or say now, if you've read my book, you're already familiar with this. And it's on a few of our other recorded teachings. Okay. This goes back to Daniel chapter 7 and to, to the book of Genesis. The vision of Joseph with the woman, uh, with the sun and the moon and so forth and the stars. It's based on the vision of Joseph, what derives from it, but it also has the dragon, okay, with the seven heads and ten horns that come straight from the book of Daniel. Okay, so this is talking about future prophecy. And she gave birth to a male son who's to rule the nations with the rod of iron. Okay. And what we see here is the dragon stood before the woman in verse 4 so that she could devour the child. When she gave birth, he might devour her child. Okay. Now the child is supernaturally protected. Okay. The child is supernaturally protected. He escapes from the dragon. What the dragon wants to do is to kill the child. Okay. There was a conflict in heaven between Michael and his angels fighting with the dragon and the dragon that is Satan and his angels waged war and they were not strong enough and there were no longer a place found for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down of old, who's called devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to earth. Now, this has to do with his incarnation inside of the Antichrist. The Antichrist will be the satanic counterfeit of the incarnation of Christ. 
game. That's what it has to do. So he comes down and he tries to kill the woman. Verse 13, when the dragon saw he was thrown to earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child, but the two wings of great eagles were given to the woman so she could fly to the wilderness to her place where she was nourished for time, times, and a half time, three and a half lunar years, according to the prophecies of Daniel's 70th week and Daniel chapter 9. Okay. Then it continues. <clears throat> the baby's rescued, and the serpent poured out water like a river out of his mouth after the woman, so he might cause her to be swept away with the flood. But the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and drank the river which the dragon poured out of his mouth. Now look at verse 17. So the dragon was enraged with the woman and went off to make war with the rest of her children who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. That is something that's going to happen in the future. The church will be raptured. Satan will then turn against Israel and the Jews and any believers who were there in the tribulation. Who, anyone who does get saved or who was left, who was not raptured, he is going to go after them and destroy them. Uh, that's what Antichrist will do. That's what Satan will do. Okay, this goes back to Daniel. What this text does, if you don't know from my books and from my coming book, of course, is it replays the nativity. It is what is known as a Pesher interpretation of the nativity. Herod wanted to kill Jesus so he could stay king. Antichrist will want to prevent the return of Christ so he can stay king. Daniel tells us that when the Ancient of Days comes, the kingdom of Antichrist will be given to the saints of the Most High. Satan has to kill <laughs> the saints of the Most High in order to keep power. Of course, he fails, but he doesn't fail for lack of trying. Jesus defeats him ultimately, of course, and the faithful church is rescued. Okay. Well, what did Herod do when Jesus escaped to Egypt? Well, he was enraged with the woman and went to make war with the rest of her children. Herod went to Bethlehem and killed all the male babies two years of age and under. He murdered all of the male babies two years of age and under in Bethlehem. Herod is a major, major type of the Antichrist a major type of the Antichrist. He kills the babies. Well, what's Antichrist going to do? <laughs> to make war with the rest of her offspring, of her children. When the rescue happens, he goes berserk the way Herod did. The nativity happens again. Let's look a little bit further at this. Look with me, please to the Gospel of St. Luke. Chapter 2, verse 1. 
Now, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was the governor of Egypt. Everyone was on his way to register for the census, each to his own city. Now, understand this. Most of the known world, not all of it, but most of it, was constituted by the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire constituted most of the known world. You had the Parthian Empire, which was Persian. You had the Armenian Empire. You had things on the periphery. But Rome was the epicenter of human civilization at that time in the Western world. That was it. Caesar Augustus was the first emperor deified by the Roman Senate in his lifetime. Other emperors, like Julius Caesar, had been deified posthumously. After they were dead, they were declared to have been gods or be gods. Caesar Augustus, whose original name was Octavius, the general from the Battle of Actium and all these things, there was the triumvirate with uh, him and Mark Anthony. Be that as it may, he was the first emperor deified by the Senate. Another major picture of the Antichrist. When Jesus came the first time, you had someone ruling the Roman Empire who was proclaimed to be God. When he comes again, you're going to have an Antichrist who is going to have dominance over Western civilization, certainly continental Europe, and he's going to be deified deified. Caesar Augustus, claiming to be God, numbers all the people in order to gain economic and financial control of most of the world. He numbers the people. Now, he didn't put the number on their head, but he still assigns a number to everybody. Now, notice it's progressive, the first census and the second census. The mark of the beast is not going to be all at once. It's going to be progressive. Subcutaneous implantations, digital currency, it's going to be something that comes about progressively in stages. Same as it was the first time, it's going to be the second time. The way this deified emperor numbered the people to financially and economically control the world. <clears throat> or most of it, that's what the Antichrist is going to do. In other words, Christmas is not a past event, it is a future one. The Nativity teaches about the future unless we understand the Nativity. We cannot understand the return of Jesus. When you take little children on Christmas time to church, to the carol service, and you take them out to the Sunday school, and you tell them the story of Gabriel coming to Mary, and, uh, and Gabriel is a whole other figure because Gabriel features in the 
story of Hanukkah. He features in the book of Daniel. It was Gabriel, Gavriel, the mighty one of God, who gave Daniel the understanding of what was going to happen concerning both the first and second coming of Christ. So that same Gabriel gives Mary understanding, tells the woman, figure of the church, what is, and of Israel, what is going to happen concerning both the first coming and the second. Gabriel does in the Gospels exactly as he did in Daniel. He gives understanding of the future concerning both the first coming and the second coming. Okay? Now, you can't tell a little kid that. You can just tell a little kid that an angel named Gabriel came to Mary. They love to hear the story. They hang on every word. They're keenly focused on all the details of the shepherds and the star and the wise men and Herod and how bad he is and all this and born in a stable and no room at the inn. That is a wonderful story for children because it's a true story. It's a narrative. It's not an embellished myth without any historicity. It really happened. Now, we've, of course, modified it, but the Magi came at a later point. They didn't come at Christmas. If you look at most major scenes today, they have the Magi there. The Magi came later, obviously. And they didn't come when the shepherds were there. Okay, we, these things, again, have become a bit, again, convoluted. But it's still a true story. Okay, And it's wonderful for little children. Little kids love that story. They do plays. And who's going to be an angel and who's going to be a shepherd and whatever it is in, in the play? A Christmas play. Okay, that's, that's good. Do that in Sunday school, little kids. I think it's absolutely wonderful to have them singing away in the manger with the motions and all this little Lord Jesus. That's wonderful for little kids. I totally agree with it. But that's not for, for us. We have to move on. Gabriel comes to Mary. Blessed are you among women. This comes from the Song of Deborah in the book of Judges, chapter 5. Turn with me, please, to the book of Judges, chapter 5. Verse 24. Most blessed of women is Yael the wife of Heber the Kenite. Ooh. Most blessed is she of women in the tent. Blessed is she among women. Now this story of the assassination by Yael and Barak and Deborah on Mount Tabor, Har Tabor, Let's have a little geography lesson about Israel. Samaria is separated from Galilee by the Valley of Jezreel. 
on the south side, you have Har Megiddo. Har Megiddo, we get Armageddon. But it's actually a hill, not a valley. Then there's the huge Jezreel Valley, separating Samaria on the south from Galilee on the north. Nazareth is a city on a cliff. The original Nazareth is on a cliff. And it is on the north side of the Jezreel Valley, in the shadow of Mount Tabor, Har Tabor. It's the nearest natural landmark. Everybody would see it. So there's a little Jewish girl named Miriam. Miriam, not Mary, Miriam. And she didn't have blonde hair and blue eyes. She had dark complexion, dark features. She was probably the closest thing to Miriam today. And Joseph would be Yemenite Jews, Temanim. Dark complexion Jews. Okay. And I don't know if little girls played hopscotch or skip rope in those days, but whatever they were doing, little Miriam would be playing like other little girls up in Nazareth in the shadow of Har Tavor. Now she would have known, you see, there's Mount Tabor. That is where Yael killed that bad Sisera. And God's word says, blessed are you among women, Yael. Blessed are you among women. And little Miriam is a little kid. She's growing up in the shadow of this mountain where this story happened. Blessed are you among women. Now you can imagine having grown up where she did in the shadow of Mount Tabor, blessed are you among women from the book of Judges, that Gabriel from the book of Daniel comes to her and says to her, blessed are you among women in the Magnificat. Now, you can't teach that to little kids in Sunday school. It would make no sense to them. But when we study the nativity, we should know that. We should actually know something we look at more at Passover time, Matthew chapter zero. The genealogy of Jesus is in Matthew one, but Matthew chapter zero is the fourth chapter of the book of Ruth. The Messiah was to come from the city of David. Ruth has a baby. This begins the house of David, from where the Messiah would come. David was from where Ruth and Boaz lived. Therefore, the Messiah had to come from the same place, according to Micah chapter 5, verse 2. In Mark, Matthew chapter 2, verse 6, it quotes Micah 5, 2. You, Bethlehem, house of bread, Bethlehem, are by no means least in the clans of Judah. For you, one shall come, whose goings forth are from eternity. The Messiah would be pre-existent, according to Micah chapter 5, verse 2, as quoted in the Gospel of St. Matthew chapter 2, verse 6. You can't understand the nativity 
unless you understand the book of Ruth. You can't understand the Magnificat unless you understand the song of Deborah. You can't understand about Gabriel unless you understand about Daniel. You can't understand the nativity unless you understand about Hanukkah. We've got to get it right. But for too many generations, the church has been teaching adults the same story as they teach the little kids in Sunday school. Now, what they say is true. God becomes a man and he dies for our sin. And the Magi bring gold because he would be a king. And they bring myrrh because he would die, anoint him for burial. And they bring incense because he'd be a priest. And they say these things. And these things are right. But that's the Sunday school lesson for the kids. To understand the nativity. We have to go back to the Old Testament and look at Daniel and look at Ruth and look at Micah. And look at Isaiah chapter 7. And Isaiah chapter 9. And then we construct the template to realize Christmas is not a past event, it's a coming event as well. The nativity is a picture of his return. It's not about what did happen, it's about what did happen and what that teaches us about what is going to happen. Some of which is happening now. We're going towards a global currency and numbering of people and all this kind of things. Everybody knows it. Secular economists know it. Central bankers know it. It's going that way. Remember what Jesus said? Then they will see the sign of the coming of the Son of Man in the heavens. What did the Magi see? The Magi said they saw his sign in the east. That teaches something about his return. He'll go from the east to the west. Well, let's continue. Something I think about every day of my Christian life, and I have thought about every day of my Christian life for many, many decades. I began thinking about this in the 1970s, not long after I was saved in my native New York. Well, I was born near New York. I'm back of the Statue of Liberty in Hudson County, but I lived in Manhattan, and I got saved in Manhattan. Anyway, I thought of this. And as an evangelist to the Jews, I thought about it some more. I thought about it when I lived in Israel. I thought about it in the Jewish community in New York. I thought about it and thought about it and thought about it. This is what I thought about. From the time of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the, the original patriarchs, and the 12 sons of Jacob, the tribes, where the tribes came in Genesis 49. From that time of the patriarchs, beginning with Abraham, until the birth of the Messiah was 2,000 years. Israel and the Jews 
had 2,000 years of history. And they had the scriptures. The raison d'etre for their existence was the coming of the Messiah. They were to be all goyim, a light to the nations. Their purpose was through them, God would give the scriptures and send the Messiah. That was the reason for their existence as a nation and a people. 2,000 years of history. The time from Abraham to the birth of Jesus is just as long as the time from the birth of Jesus to us today in the year 2023 on the horizon. Just as long. 2,000 years of Jewish history waiting for the Messiah to come. We have had 2,000 years of history waiting for the Messiah to come back. Now imagine a nation whose history, whose faith, whose existence was predicated on the coming of the Messiah that only a handful of them were ready when it happened. And now we have a Christian church in the same situation. 2,000 years of history. Our existence, our identity, our faith, our history is all predicated on the parousia, the return of Jesus. How many Christians are going to be ready for him to return? How many wise virgins will there be? Well, that's easy. How many Jews were ready for his first coming? Their whole identity was based on his coming, and only a remnant, a small remnant, were ready. Two billion Christians in the world. How many are truly born again, and how many of those have not gone into apostasy? How many? How many? Now, look, there's a lot we can say about these things. His first coming is very much a paradigm for his second coming. If we want to know what kind of Christians are going to be ready for the second coming of Jesus, all we have to do is understand what kind of Jews were ready for the first coming of Yeshua. Once we know what kind of Jews were ready for the first coming of Yeshua, we are going to know exactly what kind of Christians are going to be ready for the second coming of Jesus, whom Yeshua. Before we look 
at what kind of Jews were ready. Let's first consider what kind of Jews were not ready. Turn with me, please, to the Gospel of St. Matthew. Chapter 2, verse 3. Where is he who'd been born king of the Jews? Verse 2, when we saw his star in the east, we've come to worship him. They saw the sign in the sky of his coming. Just as Jesus said, then they will see the sign in the heavens of the coming of the Son of Man. Look at verse 3. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Jerusalem. On back of me, you'll see the Shara the Golden Gates, the East Gates. Ezekiel predicted that when the Messiah came, it would be sealed up. Well, it's sealed up. And of course, it'll be sealed in the millennium when he enters it again. Suleiman Magnificent had no idea that when he was blocking those gates, the Turkish Muslim, the Sultan, that he was in large part fulfilling the prophecies of Ezekiel. Jews have a problem. Those gates are sealed, so the Messiah must have come already. In order to prevent the coming of Jesus or the Messiah, Suleiman blocked up the gates, and put a Muslim cemetery in front of it so Jews would not be able to go near it because they would be ritually defiled during the pilgrim feasts if they had contact with the dead. There it is. Jerusalem. They knew the Messiah would come through those gates. But when he came through those gates, the Pharisees... And the Sanhedrin told him, tell the people to be quiet. Stop saying Hosanna to you. That city where the Messiah was to come was not ready for him to come. Somewhere. But a few days later, Crowds yelled, crucify him. The Romans killed him. Jew and Gentile together. Well, of course, we know that was the foreplan of God to bring salvation. But he was rejected. All Jerusalem was troubled with Herod. Before Christ returns, not only will the Antichrist not want him to come back, most people won't want him to come back. 
And by most people, I just don't mean the unsaved. I've been warning for years. I've been pointing to scriptures for years. Look what Jesus warned us about. They'll be eating and drinking, marrying, giving in marriage. Things that are not wrong, but people will be obsessed and focused on the temporal instead of the eternal. Most of the lies of the devil, and I've said this a hundred times, most of the lies of the devil perpetrated at the church, certainly at least in the Western world, are to spiritually seduce us to trust in this life or this world. What is on back of the word faith money preachers? God wants you rich. What's on back of people like Copeland and, 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 and Joseph Prince, T.D. And, and, and Jakes, and, and, trusting in this life? What is on back of the purpose-driven lie, trusting in this life? These are the seductions. Instead of trusting in the return of Jesus, we trust in the temporal instead of the eternal. It is not only the world who won't want him to come back. What's on back of dominion theology, triumphalism, kingdom now theology, hyper-Calvinistic reconstructionism, trusting in this life, we're going to establish the kingdom of God. Then he'll come back after we establish the kingdom. What nonsense. Romans says the Lord of glory will crush the head of the serpent under your feet. We're not going to crush it. There's so many false teachers who've been taught the opposite, like Kevin, Kevin Connor in Australia, that the church is going to conquer the serpent. This is ridiculous. There will be a Herod. There will be an Antichrist. And most people will prefer the Antichrist to Christ. Most people will prefer Antichrist to Christ. You're already seeing Christians compromise on the most fundamental of issues. Same-sex marriage, abortion. You're seeing born-again Christians compromise with the world on these issues. That's why persecution becomes an unfortunate necessity. Well, let's look. Gathering together the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. And they said in Bethlehem of Judea, quoting from Micah 5, verse 2. Notice the theologians of the day knew the prophecies. They knew the prophecies. All Jerusalem mourned with Herod. And the religious establishment, who actually knew the scriptures, were not ready for him to come either. The World Council of Churches, the Vatican, the compromised evangelicals in the apostate church, the New Apostolic Reformation, the ecumenical movement, 
These people are not going to be ready for the return of Jesus. Their leaders are not going to be ready. There are going to be academic theologians who can read Greek and Hebrew better than most people can read English in, in, in Great Britain or America. But they're not going to be ready. Most will not be ready. The same as most Jews were not ready for the first coming, most so-called Christians will not be ready for the second. Oh, they were culturally Jews. They had a religious identity as Jews, even a national identity as Jews. But as Moses and Jeremiah warned, they were uncircumcised of heart. We are told in Romans 15 and twice in 1 Corinthians 10 that the history of Israel was written so we, the church, would not make the same mistakes, but we've made the same mistakes and worse, and we have their example to learn from. They were not ready. But somewhere. What kind of Jews were ready for the first coming of Jesus? What kind? Look with me, please, to Matthew chapter 1, verse 19. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man, not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. Then... What we would call engagement, that is betrothal, was legally binding. It was the contractual phase of the marital process. The marital process at this time among Jews had three phases. The first phase was betrothal. That had to do with consecration. And it was legally civil phase. God has set this man apart to this woman. God has set this woman apart to this man. They are contractually married, legally bound. That is consecration. The bridegroom would go away for a year thereabout, usually at Passover time and prepare a place for the bride, building an extension onto his father's house. Then he would come back. She wouldn't know the day or the hour, only roughly the time of year. And she knew he was legally bound to come back at night. He'd always come at night. We have other teachings on the Song of Solomon explaining this. Then there would be the nuptial, the nuptial. While betrothal had to do with consecration, the nuptial had to do with convocation, the witnesses to the romance. We see this in the Song of Solomon, the witnesses to the romance between Shlomo HaMelech and Shulamit. 
which of course we have other teachings explaining is figurative of Christ and the church and the Shavot HaShemayim, the hosts of heaven, being the witnesses. But I digress. So you have betrothal and nuptial. You have consecration and convocation. The third phase is consummation. Consummation. You have betrothal, nuptial, and then the sexual. Betrothal, nuptial, and sexual. Consecration, convocation, consummation. Now, consummation has to do with the oneness we will have with God through Christ in eternity, okay? The marriage supper of the Lamb is something concurrent it would see, with, with the millennial reign of Christ. It'll be like a marriage feast for the believers, okay? It's going to be quite a party for a thousand years. Anyway, I go and prepare a place for you. Okay. Joseph was in the betrothal phase. He was legally obligated to marry Mary. She was legally and contractually his wife, even though they had not had the nuptial yet. The consecration took place, but not the convocation or the consummation. For a Jewish marriage to be legal and valid in the sight of their law, according to Torah, that God gave them, you had to have all three. Betrothal. You had to have, you know, the, the nuptial, obviously. And then you had to have the consummation of the relationship. If Mary was a perpetual virgin... If Mary was a perpetual virgin and Joseph and Mary never consummated their marriage, something the New Testament says is wrong, it would mean that Mary and Joseph were not legally married, that Jesus' parents just shacked up and they had a sexless marriage. Joseph Ganasco did not know her. Ganasco know her intimately in Greek until after Jesus was born. But then they consummated their marriage. It was a perfectly legal, perfectly valid marriage according to their law at that time in their culture. What an insult to marry Joseph and above all Jesus to say your parents are not legally married. This Roman Catholic lie of the perpetual virginity of Mary. Joseph knew her not pithero until he was born. Now, Joseph was righteous and just. As far as he could have known, before the angelic explanation and apparition, Mary had been guilty of infidelity. She slept with someone else. 
probably as a teenage girl, and got pregnant. As far as Joseph knew. Now, this is what we would today in America at least call a blue law. It's a law on the books that's rarely enforced, but it could have been grounds, it could have been a capital crime technically, although people were not generally executed for it. This relates to John chapter 8, the woman caught in adultery. What did Joseph know? She's pregnant. That's it. Notice how he tried to cover her sin, protect her dignity, put her away privately. When someone persists in sin in such a matter that it affects the body of Christ and damages the body or the witness and testimony of the church, we have to address it publicly. We're told by Jesus in Matthew 18 to do that. But initially, go to them privately. We should try to cover each other's sin. Not cover it up, but cover it. You deal with them privately, but you don't deliberately expose them publicly. Now, of course, we follow Matthew 18. If people persist in something that becomes damaging to the body of Christ, or people are spreading false doctrine and heresy, things like this, that's something different. We follow Matthew 18. We do what the apostles did, name these people publicly. Philitus, Diotrephes, Hymenius, Alexander the coppersmith, the apostles named them. But if we see a sin in another, we're not supposed to cover the sin up, but we're supposed to cover them. We want God to be gracious to us we want him to forget our sin for the sake of his son, Jesus. And he's willing to do it. But he expects us to treat others the same way. The average guy would have hit the roof. I loved you. We got engaged. We were going to get married and have children. And now you're knocked up, you dirty slag. You know, that's what the average person would say today. Joseph was not like that. Notice he's legally bound to her husband being a righteous man, not wanting to disgrace her, planned to do it all secretly. All secretly. Yes. All secretly. But when he considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared, saying, Joseph, son of David. Now notice that, Joseph, son of David. Remember, in Judaism and in Scripture, we see Judaism is right about this, and I don't mean Talmudic Judaism. I mean scriptural Judaism. 
one Messiah, two comings. In his first coming, he comes as the son of Joseph. In his second coming, the son of David. In his first coming, he's in the character of Joseph from the book of Genesis, a suffering servant. You know the the, the list. <laughs> uh, Joseph was betrayed by his Jewish brothers to the hands of Gentiles. God takes that betrayal and turns it around and makes it a way for all Israel, all the world to be saved. Jesus is betrayed by his Jewish brothers to the hands of the Gentiles, and God turns it around, make it a way for all Israel to be saved. The Gentiles accept Joseph in Egypt. The Gentiles accept Yeshua. Most Christians are non-Jews. Joseph was condemned with two criminals as he prophesied one would live, one would die. Jesus was condemned with two criminals, and as he prophesied, one would live and one would die. You'll be with me in paradise. Joseph goes from a place of condemnation to a place of exaltation in a single day and takes a Gentile bride. Jesus goes from a place of condemnation to a place of exaltation in a single day and takes a Gentile bride. They bring Joseph's cloak to prove he's not in the pit as they bring Jesus' shroud to prove that he's not in the tomb. Joseph is betrayed by his brother Yehuda, Judas, for 20 pieces of silver. Adjusted for inflation, Jesus is betrayed by his brother Yehuda, Judas, for 30 pieces of silver. Okay. Joseph's brothers don't recognize him at the first coming. They recognize him at the second, and they weep bitterly. So Jesus' brothers, the Jews, Zechariah 12, 10, they'll look upon him, they have pierced and mourn as one mourns for an only son. They recognize him at the second coming and they will weep bitterly. This is Messiah, son of Joseph, Hamashiach ben Yosef. My apologies to our regular people who are familiar with this. I need to do it for the video, for RTN. Therefore, it is providential that the legal foster father of Jesus was named Joseph. In his first coming, he's the son of Joseph. In his second coming, he's the son of David, a conquering king who establishes God's kingdom, who has been exalted. Thus we see about Joseph. He's told Joseph, son of David. The reference to a virgin shall conceive from Isaiah. Now the rabbis tried to say the following, two Hebrew words, Alma and Betula, Alma and Betula. Alma meaning today a young woman. Betula meaning a virgin. And so the rabbis like to say that Christians are wrong about Isaiah 7.14. It doesn't say a virgin shall conceive. It says a young woman shall conceive. Well, first of all, young women conceive babies every day of the week. How will that be a sign? Isaiah 7 says it would be a sign. It's no sign if a young woman conceives a child. But if a virgin conceives a child, if it's parthenogenesis, and the child actually lives and is born, which is medically, clinically, biologically, embryologically not possible for a human. 
there are species who who can reproduce with parthenogenesis, including the the, the Kamada dragon. But the, the, they they actually can reproduce that way. And that, there's a the whole meaning to that with the dragons. It's the only species of dragon dinosaur left. If you want to be technical about it, <laughs> they can be 22 feet long, and they reproduce without. Uh, Sexual reproduction without fertilization, they auto fertilize. Uh, <clears throat> the whole other thing, but related to this. Parthenogenesis can happen in humans successfully. There'll be a miscarriage at a very early point. It won't be a full proper conception. Well, let's look. What the rabbis don't tell you is seven times, seven times. The ancient sages who translated the Septuagint from Hebrew to Greek seven times, they translated the word Alma Parthenos. Only once is it translated young woman. Seven times they say Alma means Parthenos, means virgin. A virgin shall conceive. At that time in Jewish culture, an unmarried young woman, it was taken for granted she was a virgin. It was not a promiscuous society. Very few women would have had sexual relations outside of wedlock, outside of holy wedlock. It was the process of consecration, convocation, consummation. Very few women would have done it and technically, it was a capital crime. Plus, it wouldn't have been a sign. A virgin shall conceive. Well, we have this guy, Joseph. Righteous and just. Willing to be a father to a baby that was not biologically his, but loved that kid as if it was his own Kids conceived of the Holy Spirit, but is the Son of God, the eternal Son of God, not the Son of Joseph biologically, but he is the Son of Joseph legally. We have a teaching on the uh, genealogy as we explain this. Well, let's look. Righteous and just. going to be a father to the baby whose father is in heaven. You're going to be a surrogate for the Almighty. What a thing for Joseph. He was a surrogate for the Almighty. He was the carpenter and he taught Jesus' trade, just like any other Jew of the time. Joseph. That was the kind of Jew ready for the first coming. And that's the kind of Christian you're going to be ready for the second. But then we go on. We have Miriam. Miriam. Not Mary. Miriam. I love Miriam. 
unfortunately, at the Council of Ephesus in the 5th century, post-Nicaea, after the church paganized, and not that long after Nicholas. A church council, quote-unquote, at a time when the church was Hellenized and Platonized, began to become paganized. And the same place where Diana of Ephesus, also known as Artemis, was the queen of heaven. The prophecies of Jeremiah, they'll be sacrificing cakes to the queen of heaven, began to come into fulfillment. And Mary was proclaimed the queen of heaven. In other words, blonde hair, blue eye Mary is not Miriam. She's Diana of Ephesus. She's an imposter. Now, I like the little Jewish girl who grew up in Nazareth in the shadow of Mount Tabor. Blessed are you among women. Visited by Gabriel from the book of Daniel and the Magnificat. Overshadowed by the Holy Spirit. God Almighty becomes a man incarnated inside of her. She's a type of the church and a picture of Israel. Man. Am I looking forward to meeting Mary and Joseph, Joseph and Mary? I'm looking forward to meeting them, aren't you? I think Mary is sensational. I think Mary is terrific. I think Mary is the greatest woman who ever lived. Blessed are you among women. Mary is marvelous. Mary is absolutely, unbelievably unique. I love Mary. The real Mary. That is, I love Miriam. Miriam. Not Mary. Miriam. I love Miriam. Now, the name Miriam in Hebrew has to do with bitterness. It was the name of Moses' sister. Remember at the waters of Meribah, the waters were bitter in the book of Exodus? Mary had that name, Miriam, that was her name because of the prophecies of Simeon. The sword will pierce your own heart. She would know bitterness because of what would happen to her baby son. Can you imagine carrying that baby, delivering that baby, being a mother to that baby, knowing that a sword was going to pierce your own heart because of him? What a magnificent woman. Miriam. Boy, do I like Miriam. Boy, do I esteem Miriam. I think Miriam is absolutely marvelous, and I can't wait to meet Miriam. But I don't want anything to do with that stupid, dumb, blonde, bimbo, shiksa, Mary. She's an imposter. She's Diana of Ephesus. She's Artemis. She's Minerva. 
but she's not Miriam. Now, what does Miriam say? What does the greatest woman who ever lived say when Gabriel from the book of Daniel tells her she is going to be the mother of the Messiah? What does Miriam say? Remember, she's only a teenager, probably less than 17 years of age. Probably. And the Magnificat in Luke chapter 1, the first words out of her mouth when she's told she's going to be the mother of the Messiah, blessed are you among women. You're it, the greatest woman who ever lived. What does she say? My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit has rejoiced in God, my Savior. Your baby is going to save his people from their sin. Her response? My soul rejoices in God, my Savior. The greatest woman who ever lived. The first words out of her mouth was, I need a Savior. Now, her nephew was the greatest man who ever lived apart from Christ. None born among women is greater than John. Her nephew was the greatest man who ever lived. None born among women. He was the most righteous man under the Torah. But he who was least in the kingdom is greater than John. Because John represents righteousness under the law. Believers have the imputed righteousness of Christ. Of course, John is exalted now. But when he was here, he didn't have second birth. And he was a unique man. He was filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb. What did the greatest man who ever lived say when he saw Jesus? I'm not worthy to tie his bootlace. Mary says, I need a savior. This is the greatest man who ever lived and the greatest woman who ever lived. And all the greatest woman who ever lived could say is, I need a savior. This disgusting Roman Catholic lie of the Immaculate Conception of Mary makes Mary a liar if it were true. But Mary is not the liar. The pedophile protecting Church of Rome is the liar. If Mary says she needs to be saved from sin, I believe her. I don't believe for one second that Mary would lie to us. She wouldn't lie to me. She wouldn't lie to you. She's the greatest woman who ever lived. She was not lying. If she says she needs to be saved, I believe her. All have sinned. All fall short of the glory of God. This idea of theatricos, mother of God, is not in Scripture. It was a pagan concept 
that came from Tammuz worship in the book of Ezekiel from Babylon. Miriam was not that. She was blessed among women. But she said she needed to be saved. Just think about it. None born among women is greater than John. And blessed is Mary among women. That's her nephew and her. The two most righteous people who ever lived apart from Christ himself. The two most righteous people who ever lived said they needed to be saved. <laughs> now, if the most righteous people who ever lived, if the most righteous woman who ever lived, if the greatest woman who ever lived needed to be saved, where does that put the rest of us? Mary wasn't lying. And even if she did lie, which she certainly didn't, God would not have put it in his word. But it's in his word that she needed to be saved, and I believe her. A teenager. Forget about Miss Universe or Miss America or whatever. Or an A-list Hollywood starlet. It doesn't matter. That's nothing. This is the greatest woman who ever lived. I need a savior. That's the kind of Jew who was ready for the first coming of Jesus. And that's the kind of Christian going to be ready for the second coming of Jesus. Let's look at some of her family. Look with me, please, to Luke chapter 1, verses 5 and 6. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zacharias. Now that suggests to us typologically that there will still be some righteous clergy when the Antichrist comes to power, some. Most of the religious establishment will be corrupt the way the Sanhedrin were. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zacharias of the division of Aviyah. Aviyah means my, Yahweh is my father, or my father is Yahweh. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron. In other words, they were Levites, Levitical. And her name was Elizabeth. Now, I don't want to go into it now, but the Messiah would be both a king and a priest. Yeshua's Jesus priesthood came from Melchizedek, not from Aaron. But he had Levitical relatives. Mary's family were from the tribe of Levi, who through marriage was a co-descendant from the tribe of Judah and the tribe of Levi. A king had to be a descendant of David through the tribe of Judah. The high priest had to be a descendant of Aaron through the tribe of Levi. 
Mary had family, possibly her mother was Levitical, who married, or probably a mother, was Levitical, who married into the tribe of Judah. And Mary was born by El Heli. Now, what's interesting is this. The Talmud, ancient rabbis who were trying to disprove that Yeshua was the Messiah, wrote the following in Sanhedrin 25 Gimel. Miriam Bat Heli, which was a Greekization from son for Eli. Mary's genealogy, according to the Talmud, even, tells us that Luke's genealogy is the geology through Mary, where you had a combination of Davidic and Levitical blood, ancestry, DNA in her family. Joseph was the paternal with the surrogate fatherhood of Joseph. The genealogy of Matthew is through Joseph. The genealogy of Luke is through Mary. Now, most genealogies were patriarchal, not matriarchal, but that is not completely true. Most were. But in the Old Testament, you have the daughters of Zalanafat. Genealogies could be matriarchal in the Old Testament. This relates to Luke's genealogy. But our subject is not genealogies. I only mention this in passing. So Jesus had the cousin of John the Baptist, who was the son of a high priest. Therefore, Jesus' mother had to be from two tribes, Levi and Judah, because the Messiah would be both king and priest, even though his priesthood was from a different order, Melchizedek, as we know. Melchizedek. I hope I'm making sense. So you have this righteous clergyman at a time of corruption. There was a priest named Zacharias of the division of Abiyah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron. Her name was Elizabeth. These were Mary's relatives, and they were Levitical. They were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. Because they had no child, Elizabeth was barren, they were advanced in years, and so forth. Now, what happened when he was performing his priestly service before God in the appointed order of division? And of course, this is Yom Kippur, when once a year, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies when he has his revelation. But who reveals it to him in verse 19? The angel answered and said, I am Gabriel, Ani Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God. And I've been sent to speak to you and bring you this evangelion, good news, bisara in Hebrew. The same Gabriel that explains things to Daniel, explains it to Mary, now he explains it to the father of John the Baptist. 
Oh boy. You had a righteous clergyman. He was righteous in the sight of the Lord. I know Baptist pastors who are heartbroken at what has become of the Southern Baptists. J.D. Greer saying that Baptists should become the number one spokesman for homosexual and lesbian rights. To them, that's the right to adopt children and bring them up to be homosexuals. And this is what the Southern Baptists have come to? I know Southern Baptists, missionaries and pastors who are heartbroken. I've known Pentecostals who are heartbroken over what's happened because of the word faith money preachers and because of the counterfeit revivals that came from Toronto and Pensacola that devastated Pentecostalism. They're heartbroken. They said this is not Pentecostalism. I know Anglican vicars who are heartbroken. We can't stay in the Church of England anymore. Containing homosexuals and lesbians, same-sex marriage. We can't do this. We were in a post-denominal age. Most denominations are backslidden. They've turned away from their heritage. They've turned away from the word of God because they've turned away from God. It's the Reformed churches. It's most of Methodism. It's the largest Baptist denominations now. And most of them have gone down the ecumenical road. Even the movements that were once good are now split. That's the way it was when he came the first time. That's the way it's going to be when he comes again. No matter how corrupt the system becomes, there's going to be individual clergy a godly man with a godly wife who says, help me in the ministry. We're going to stay faithful. And God's going to deal with them and use them. And they're going to understand what's happening and what it means and why that it points to the coming of Jesus. Zachariah and Elisheva, Elizabeth. Those are the kind of Jews ready for the first coming of Jesus. And those are the kind of Christians who are going to be ready for his return. You just think about Elisheva. John the Baptist, the greatest man who ever lived, begins kicking around in her womb when he recognizes Jesus embryonically. These two women from the same family are both pregnant simultaneously, one with Yohanan HaMadbil, John the Baptist, and the other with the Lord Jesus, Yeshua the Messiah. And the baby's kicking around in her womb. He recognizes it. Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting. Mary arose, went to the city of Zacharias and greeted Elizabeth. Heard Mary's greeting. The baby leaped in her womb. Oh, boy. 
They recognized each other. Jesus was conceived of the Holy Spirit. John was filled with the Spirit from his mother's womb. Yohanan Hamadbil, Elisheva, Zacharias. Those were the kinds of Jews ready for the first coming of Jesus. The kind of clergy ready for the first coming of Jesus. And those are going to be the kind that are ready for him to come back. But let's look at Luke chapter 2, verse 8. In the same region, there were shepherds staying out in the fields, keeping watch over the flock by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared before them. And the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. But the angel said, do not be afraid. I bring you good news. Besora, evangelion, gospel of great joy, glad tidings today in the city of David. They were praising God. Glory to God in the highest and on earth. Peace among men with whom he is pleased. Sometimes translated men of goodwill. Gloria in a Chalcis Deo. In the Vulgate. Shepherds watching the flock at night. Remember, he's coming like a thief in the night. The bridegroom always comes for the bride in the night. Work while you have the light. Night's coming. No man can work. But these shepherds sought to watch their sheep as things got dark. Well, things are getting very dark now. Now, the Hebrew word for pastor and shepherd is the same word, roe. In Greek, you can have two words, poeon or episcopo, depending on the context and the passage. But shepherd means pastor. As things get dark and as things become frightening, they try to watch over their flocks faithfully. Sometimes it's a house church. Sometimes it's a little church on the obscure end of town. It's getting harder and harder for Christians to find biblically-based churches. They're meeting in homes. They're meeting in small groups. But where two or more are gathered in my name, there will always be leadership. There will always be pastoral ministry. They will watch the sheep. Pastors watching the sheep as things get dark. I know pastors now. Not a lot. But I know pastors now in America, in Britain, in Canada. Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, Europe. And as things become darker and darker, they watch their sheep. Like David, they may be mocked for having few sheep. But the ones they have are the ones that are going to count. The shepherds who watched the flock 
as things get darker and darker. Those are the kinds of Jews ready for his first coming. Those are the kinds of shepherds who are going to be ready for his return. But let's look, please, to two more characters. Look with me to Luke chapter 2, verse 25. There was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was righteous and devout, looking for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was on him, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ, Messiah. And he came in the spirit in the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Yeshua, Jesus, to carry out for him the custom of the law, that is circumcision, he took him into his arms and said, Now, Lord, you're releasing your bondservant to depart in peace. In other words, to give up the ghost according to your word. He had a real prophecy. My eyes have seen your salvation. Now, you have to understand the underlying Aramaic and Hebrew. Salvation, Yeshua, Jesus Yeshua. I've seen your Yeshua. I've seen your Yeshua, your salvation. My eyes have seen your salvation. He is salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all people, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel and his father and mother, Joseph and Miriam, Yosef and Miriam. Now, Joseph, Yosef means he shall add, or Yahweh shall add. There's more to come. Son of Joseph, son of David. There's more to come. That's what Joseph means. He shall add. And then his prophecy to Mary, a sword will even pierce your own soul. Oh, boy. To the end that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. This old guy, and he's getting older, only a couple of teeth left, and most of his hair is gone, and his vision is not quite as good as it once was, nor is his hearing. And he can't get a date. But although his eyes grew dim, his spiritual sight increased. And although his hearing leaned towards a deafening effect geriatrically, he was able to hear the voice of God. Simeon, you're not going to check out until you've seen the Messiah. Maybe he couldn't hear the ball game, but he could hear the voice of God. Maybe he couldn't see the landscape, but he could see the salvation of God. 
scripture speaks of trees bringing forth good sap and old age. The older he got, the better his eyesight became and the better his hearing became spiritually. His whole life, what does it say? He was looking for the consolation of Israel. He wanted Jesus to come and the spirit was on him. A spirit-filled old man. I knew an evangelist like this, ex-Catholic guy named Patrick, faithfully preached the word of God with tracts and a Bible in front of a shopping mall. He loved the Lord. He wanted Jesus to come. Now he's with the Lord. The Lord came for him. Looking forward to seeing him again. I know an old man like that. I've known old brothers in the Lord like this. Well, that's the kind of Jew ready for the first coming. That's the kind of senior citizen going to be ready for the second. But for every little old man, there's a little old lady. There was a prophetess in verse 36. Notice she was a prophetess. Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. Forget about British Israelism and the lost tribes. The tribes were not lost. They kept their identity. The faithful people from the north came south, and the revivals of King Asa and others who went to the Assyrian captivity came back with the tribe of Judah and Benjamin and Levi from the Babylonian captivity, according to the book of Chronicles, Second Chronicles. Forget about the lost tribes. They were not lost. She's from Asher. She was advanced in years and had lived with her husband seven years. She had a husband seven years. There's some significance in that. And then as a widow to the age of 84. That was a very old age at that time. That would be like a centurion now. She never left the temple serving night and day with fastings and prayer. And the very moment she came up and began giving thanks to God, continued to speak of him to all who were looking for the redemption of Israel. Her whole life was prayer and fasting and serving God. And all she could do was tell people about Jesus. <laughs> Have you ever met an old lady like that in the church? Prayer warriors, some people call them intercessors, some of them are. They look like they're old, frail ladies with brittle bones. But they're dynamos. They have tremendous spiritual power. Their prayers are powerful. Anna was a prophetess. She remained single for the sake of serving the Lord after she was widowed, serving God day and night in the temple, always praying, always fasting. And all she could do was tell people about Jesus. We're going to meet her too someday. Yes, those are the kinds of Jews ready for the first coming of Jesus.
And those are going to be the kinds of Christians ready for his return. Manjus, the Magi, Esther and Daniel obviously left the monotheistic influences. of the Hebrew faith back in Babylon and Persia among the Medes and Persians. We read that some of the Persian kings became monotheistic, but worshippers of the Jewish God. So the Magi come because they recognize the signs. And we see more and more signs of his coming. Just this, what's right on back of me. The fact that the Jews are back in their land again after 2,000 years, right where Jesus said they would be. Luke 21, 24, Matthew 23, 39, Zechariah 12, 1 to 10. They're right back where Jesus said they would be. And no matter who likes it or who dislikes it, they aren't going anywhere. Antichrist will try to remove and displace them, but Christ will return. He will come back the second time, the same as he came the first time. Oh, there will be another Herod much worse. There will be another Caesar Augustus much worse. There will be an Antichrist. Most people will not want Jesus to come back, even most people professing to be Christians, even people who know the scriptures. Head knowledge is not heart knowledge. Somebody has the right heart. God can give them the right understanding. It's much easier to take somebody with the right heart and give them understanding than it is to take somebody with the wrong heart but who has only head knowledge. It's easy for God to go from here to here. It's not so easy to go from here to here. That's not to demean the importance and necessity of head knowledge, but it's useless without the heart knowledge. But if somebody really has the heart knowledge, they're going to want the head knowledge. They're going to want to understand the scriptures. If somebody doesn't want to understand the scriptures, there's something wrong with their heart. But having it only in the head is useless. The Sanhedrin had it in the head. We're told they knew Jesus spoke the parables about them. He had to explain the parables privately to his disciples. These were people who knew the scriptures. That's the way it was when he came the first time. And that is the way it will be when he comes again. Joseph, righteous and just. Miriam, I need a savior. Zachariah, 
I don't care how corrupt the clergy is. By the grace of God, I'm staying faithful and my wife is with me. Elisheva. The shepherds who watch over the flock at night. That older brother Simeon, longing for the consolation of Israel filled with the spirit who prophesies about Jesus. and honor the little old lady from the tribe of Asher. The little old lady who washes the church steps and makes the coffee and prays and prays and prays and always has tracks in her pocketbook. Yes, those were the kinds of Jews ready for the first coming of Jesus. And those are exactly the kinds of Christians who are going to be ready for him to come back. My prayer for all of us and our families this time of year is that by the grace of God, we will be among them. That God will give us the grace to be like Simeon and Anna and the shepherds and the wise men, and Joseph, and Mary, and Zechariah, and Elisheva, and Yochanan Amat Bil, God would give us the grace to be for the second coming the kinds of Christians that they were the kinds of Jews for his first coming. That is my prayer, my hope for my family and myself, and for you and for your family. Let us be clear. There's no question about it. There can be no mistake. Let us understand one thing for sure. My dear brethren in Jesus, the nativity is not merely a past event, it's a future one. Let there be no misunderstanding. Christmas is coming. God bless and have a very wonderful holiday in Jesus and a blessed new year.